Welcome, everybody. It's good to see you guys this weekend and everybody watching online and our live sites, the Montrose Building. Welcome as well. A few folks looking for seats still, so maybe raise your hand a little bit if there's one near you. Uh, it's always a great way to meet people. If you're single, exchange numbers. I'm just saying, like, it's a thing. And so you can do that if you want to. Uh, uh, before I jump into our conversation um, this weekend, I wanted to just uh, let you guys know of something we did last weekend. Uh, not everybody gets to see this or be a part of it, but we do something twice a year called the Splash Bash. And it is a lot of fun. It's, uh, the Splash Bash is where most of the children and teenagers in the church get baptized. So when they've accepted Christ and want to follow him, they understand him kind of on the level that they're at in their life, and then they follow that commandment of his to be baptized. Uh, we do these in these splash bashes. So last weekend, uh, we had 17 uh, children and youth get baptized, which is awesome and a, and a fun thing, yeah? <laughs> Cheer for that. <clears throat> and then, uh, and, and I encourage you, uh, we, well, the next one we'll do is in the fall, so kind of after the summer and all the sports camps and everything that we do in the fall. I think last fall we baptized like 65 uh, in, in uh, this splash bash, but it is fun. If you ever want to like see the life of the church or like the payoff of all the volunteering and all the hard work and all the financial giving and all that kind of stuff, these are places of celebration. I just love it. And, and it is so much fun because here at Grace, kind of our way of doing thing is the, the person who leads someone into Christ usually is the one who baptizes them. So you have teenagers who led their friends to Christ, will baptize them. You'll have uh, siblings do that. An older sibling will lead a younger sibling to Christ and baptize them. Parents do that a lot. And then the, the pastors and the volunteers are involved as well. But I love it, and it is such a rewarding thing to look and say, that, that's why we're always pushing so hard and working so hard. So I want you to celebrate together, and you just don't get to see it a lot. The, the adults, we tend to baptize in the weekend services, which is also a ton of fun, but sometimes we don't get to see the kids and the teenagers as much, and I wanted you to know about that, and make the next one. Put it on your calendar and, uh, and be a part of it so it's fun. Uh, we're in a series right now called Asking for a Friend, and uh, what we're doing in this series is looking at kind of these tough passages in Scripture, ones that get confusing sometimes, where, where you would look and say, man, I, I thought God was like a loving God, a gracious God, a merciful God, and man, it looks like he got really honked off right there or reacted, maybe overreacted to something. It's confusing sometimes to see it, and I don't understand it. And these become conversations we have in the lobby a lot or in life group. Or maybe you have with a, a friend who is trying to wrestle with their relationship with God. And so we decided to tackle some of these things, right? And to look and say, what, what, is, what is God doing? How is he acting? And how do we kind of put that into a broader context of who he is? We've said that in these passages, what we're observing a lot of times is the holiness and the justice of God. And so there's times in the Bible where God's mercy and compassion and, and grace is kind of at the forefront of the story, and then there's other times that his mercy and his righteousness and his justice, things like that, is at the forefront of the story, and we're kind of trying to understand what all that means. We define holiness and justice this way. It's an incomplete definition, but just helps us talk about it. We've said this, that the holiness of God is tied to his power, his goodness, and his perfection. So you'll see that, right? When it jumps out in the front of the story, you'll see like the power of God. God will like send fire down from heaven and it will consume a, a sacrificial offering or he'll open the earth up and like swallow people. Like you'll see this power of God at work and that'll jump out sometimes. It's also his goodness. God's holiness is tied to his goodness. That's important because God is perfectly good, which means he does not have ulterior motives. So God loves us perfectly. He's generous to us perfectly. He blesses us perfectly. He's never up to something else, right? So he, when he loves you or blesses you or calls you or directs you, 
His motives are always pure in that way. And then his perfection is a big, a big deal. God is sinless. And so his mind, his ways, his character, his decisions are always perfect, right? And, and we can trust that and know that about him. And one of the things where his, one of the areas that his perfection shows up is in his justice. So God is perfectly just. So his justice is, is God's definition of good and evil. So when God says something is good, it's good. When he says something is evil, it's evil. When God tells us to interact with each other a certain way or him a certain way, those, those directions are always perfect. And when you see God enact his justice, whether he's enacting it kind of directly and it feels a little bit out of the blue, like, man, he just got mad and did that. That's what it feels like. It's not that because he is perfect, right? So his justice is perfect. His timing is perfect. His decisions are perfect. And so we'll see that. But sometimes when that shows up in the Bible, we'll look and say, well, to me, that doesn't seem fair or that seems schizophrenic or seems weird that God would just act like that. <clears throat> and, and we need to look back at Scripture and say, well, is that what's happening or is that a part of who God is? So we've been using this illustration of the sun, like the sun, the moon, the stars, the sun in our sky, which by the way would be the bright thing that you're seeing right now in Northeast Ohio. So the sun in our sky. Got this illustration from something called the Bible Project, which by the way, I highly recommend. Uh, so if you wanna Google the Bible Project or go to their YouTube channel, they do a great job at explaining kind of high-level things in the Bible. And so they, they use this illustration. I think it's a great one. They said, when you think about God, think about the sun. The sun is what it is, right? So the sun warms us, helps us, grows our food, can even protect us, and it will burn us, cause a drought. And if you get too close to it, you'll combust. And if you stare in it, your eyeballs will burn out, right? And so it... It is what it is. It's not being schizophrenic. The same sun that warms us is the sun that will burn us. The same sun that gives a welcome light is the same sun that will burn your eyeballs out if you look directly into it, right? So it is what it is. And because it is what it is, we adjust and yield to the sun. We don't look and say, son, I demand that you take it down a couple notches. Or son, don't you burn me today. We don't tell the sun what to do. We don't craft the sun in our own image. Well, when I think about the sun, I think about this. Doesn't matter what we think about it. It is what it is. God is like that. He is what he is. So he is merciful and graceful and compassionate and just and righteous and perfect and all those things. And we respond to who he is he doesn't change because of our opinion. What we think about him is kind of irrelevant to who he is. And we are the ones who are to adjust to him. He's not the one who would adjust to us. So we've been talking about this for a few weeks. It's a really fascinating conversation. And at Grace, there's the website, there's podcasts, there's all kinds of stuff out there. That stuff is always free. You just have to go grab it. And this may be worth a listen, right? It may be worth kind of catching up on this series a little bit because we're just tackling this and these are the questions that, that we, we tend to have with it, okay? So in the course of this conversation last weekend, we talked about how Jesus is God and he is a king. He's not a democratically elected king. He is a king. And the Bible tells us that Jesus came to earth He's born of a virgin, he lived, he laid his life down, he took it up again, and then he went back to heaven. So where is Jesus right now? Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of his father, the Bible says, and the Bible says that Jesus will come back to earth one day, and when he comes back to earth, he's going to interact with us as a righteous, holy, just God. And we kind of ended with this passage last weekend, Matthew 25, when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. 
all the nations will gather before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so the Bible says that there's going to be a time in the future when Jesus returns, he will return as a king. He won't return as a baby. He'll return as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And one of the things that will happen during that time is he will gather all of the nations before him. And so the Bible says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, they will acknowledge that he is a king. He'll gather all the nations before him and he will separate what the Bible calls the sheep from the goats. The sheep are those who know him and follow him and respond to him. And the goats are those who do not know Christ who do not follow him, and who do not respond to him. And we, we look at that and say that's the return of Christ. It's tied to his second coming, and it's the events at the end of history. History as we know it will be concluded, and these events will play out, right? So the question is that I get a lot is when we talk about this or when you run into this in the Bible, the question is, like, Jeff, do you actually think that? Like, do, do you think... Jesus is coming back. Is he, is he really coming back? Is he coming back like physically? Or is that like a metaphor or a parable or like a spiritual thing? Is, is, what, what's actually going to happen? There? I'm just asking for like a friend wants to know, but I, I would like to know what do you think about that, okay? And the way that I would answer that question is this. I would look and say 100% Jesus is coming back to the earth and he's coming back physically, right? He was here once, born of a baby, lived, died, rose again. He's with his father now. And the Bible is really clear. When you read the Bible, Old and the New Testament, you will run into this again and again and again that Jesus is going to return to the earth and he's going to return physically. So Daniel writes about it. Jesus talks about it. John writes about it. Paul writes about it. Peter writes about it. It's all through the Bible that Jesus will return again, and he will do that in a physical and a literal way. Let me show you some of these. Uh, Paul, for Thessalonians, for you know very well that the day of the Lord, that's the return of Christ, will be like a thief in the night. So one of the things the Bible tells us about Jesus's return is that it will be at a time that we're not necessarily thinking about it, where the planet is not necessarily thinking about it. So like a thief in the night, we feel safe, we feel secure, everything's chill, and then somebody breaks in, so like a thief in the night. Uh, another way that the Bible says is this, is that Jesus' return will be in the twinkling of an eye. And so in the old ancient language, the idea of a twinkling of an eye is as as fast as you and I can look at each other and recognize each other. That's the twinkling of an eye. And so when he returns, it's, it's not like the tornado sirens are gonna go off and you can run to the basement and pray real quick and be like, me too, and ah, oh, good, I made it. That, that's, not the way that's, gonna, that's not the way that's gonna work. It's gonna be unexpected, super fast, and Jesus will return to the earth. The Bible talks about this in the book of Revelation. Remember therefore that what you've received and heard Hold it fast and repent, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I will come to you. Jesus says this in Matthew, but about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the, the Father. And so Jesus says, yeah, I'm, I'm going to come back the day and the hour. I don't even know. Only the Father knows, but I'm going to return, right? So why does the Bible tell us about this? And what does God want us to know? The day and the hour of Jesus's return is not important to us, right? And lots of people, they, they, they'll focus on that. They'll write books and they'll find secret math codes in the Bible and they'll figure something out and they'll try to calculate it and say, Jesus is going to come back on this day. And that is, a, that is the wrong way to look at Jesus' return. It's a great way to start a cult. If you would like to start a cult, I would recommend starting there. But it's a, it's a terrible way to read what, about the return of Jesus at the end because Jesus is saying it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter when I'm coming back. 
It matters that I'm coming back. And we would look and say, well, why does the Bible want us to know that? So that we can work our lives from Jesus' return backwards, right? So we define tomorrow today. And if I know that that's going to happen, it causes me to interact with today differently because I know that tomorrow this is something that God says is going to happen in a real way. And really, guys, this is no different than people who lived during the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the prophets would tell us that the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And sure enough, Christmas happened. Well, we're not Old Testament people. We're New Testament people. And so it's the same thing. The writers are saying Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. He showed up at Christmas. He's going to show up again. And we're letting you know so that you can be prepared, so that you can understand that when this happens, he's going to come, and he's going to come as a king. And one of the things he's going to do is he's going to judge perfectly. He's going to implement his justice and separate those sheep from those goats, okay? So what do we do in the meantime, knowing this and knowing that this is a part of who Jesus is? So let's look at the Bible. We're going to look at Peter, the Apostle Peter. He helps us to think this through. So if you've got a Bible, grab them. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll start with verse 3. Uh, the Bible's in the chairs. is page 985 in those Bibles. And then this is on the app. If you want to use the app, everything's there. And Peter's going to talk to us about this. Now, Peter write this, writes this letter. He's writing it to the early church. So most of this letter is meant to inform Christ followers about the return of Jesus so that they can be ready for that, right? So he's going to inform Christ followers about the return of Jesus so they can be ready for it. But it's also meant so that people who are not yet Christ followers can also hear and know about the return of Jesus so they too can be ready for it. But we'll get ready in a couple of different ways, and I'll show you that in a minute. Verse 3, chapter 3, 2 Peter. Above all, you must understand, Peter says to the church, that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say... Where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word that the, the present heavens and earth were reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget one thing, dear friends, the, the, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and, godless and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord and speed is coming. That day will bring about destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So dear friend, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. So Peter is writing to the church and he's saying, hey, just like Christmas happened, this is going to happen too, and I want you to be prepared for it. Okay, so let's, let's work at this a little bit, try to figure out and understand what Peter's talking about. He says this, he says, above all, he's like, just to start with, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. So he's talking to people who are Christ followers here, and he's saying, hey guys, just want to dial you in a little bit that as we get closer to Jesus' return, 
what's going to amplify across the planet is that people will be scoffing, mocking, and following their own evil desires. They'll be mocking this idea that Jesus will return. And they'll be following their own evil desires. They'll be looking and saying, hey, you guys have been talking about this since like Jesus left and he's not around. He hasn't come back. So maybe your Bible's old fashioned. Maybe you're making it up. Maybe, maybe you're just uh, apocalyptic, and that's all ridiculous. Uh, I don't even know why you pay attention to this. And they'll scoff at it, and they'll mock it, and they'll use the lack of Jesus' return as an excuse to increasingly follow their own evil desires. And that won't just happen like in your village, or with your friends, or even like in North America, That'll kind of happen globally, right? The increased volume of there is no God, this is all ridiculous, why does anybody pay attention to it? And the increased activity of doing what we want to do. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care even what the laws of nature are. I'm going to create my own truth and I'm going to live by that, and that's the way this is all gonna function. And Peter says, that's gonna happen more and more and more in those last days. And you just need to know that's gonna happen. It's no, it's no big deal. It's just kind of the way it's gonna be. And that's going to increase on those global levels. And he says this about people who are like that, he says they will deliberately forget. They'll choose to forget. And long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. People in those last days will make a decision that they will put away and shut down and make fun of the return of Christ and the laws or the teachings or the holiness of God. And what will happen is the delineation between the sheep and the goats will increase exponentially. No one will really be wondering if they're a sheep or a goat. Clear lines will be drawn so that when Jesus shows up and separates, right, it'll be really, really easy for that to happen, so to say. And they will choose to forget or choose to ignore their God-given instincts that cause human beings to look for God, right? They'll say things like, there is no creator. We all came out of the mud somehow, and we as human beings are not special parts of creation. We're just the highest level of mammals. So we're a lot like the dog, right? We're a lot like the monkey, we're, we're just like that. We've just been around a little bit longer, but we're not made in the image of God. There's nothing unique about us. That's just the way that all that plays out, and we're going to deliberately forget, choose to forget that that's the reality of who we are, right? Now, here's a problem. None of us actually think that. We, we've been taught that. We've had that drilled into our head, but we don't actually think that. You don't actually think you're just like the dog and have equal value with the dog, right? Now, I love my dog. I love my dog, Chief. That's his name. He's a 200-pound English Mastiff. He's the most worthless animal on planet Earth. His job is to make me happy when I come home. That's his job, and he's very good at his job. And so he recognizes my truck 
when I come into the garage, he's waiting for me. He knows one trick. He's not the brightest bulb in the pack, but he knows one trick. He knows how to offer his Paul. And so I'll walk up to him. I'll stand in front of him. He'll offer his Paul up to me. And I'll shake his Paul and I'll say, who's the dog? You're the dog. You're the dog. You're the good dog. Who's the dog? And he wags his, he doesn't have a tail anymore, but he used to wag his tail and he would kind of shake a little bit. And who's the dog? And I'm like, lay down, leave me alone. And he does that. And I go into the house. He's a dog. I love my dog. When that dog dies, I'll probably shed a tear like I did when the last dog died, Twister. I love Twister. She was great. And when she died, I was sad and I shed a tear and I got a new dog, Chief. And when Chief dies, I'll be sad and I'll shed a tear and we'll get a new dog, right? And I don't know his name yet, but I'm going for Buckeye. And so... That'll, that'll be the new dog, right? And we'll keep getting a dog, right? And we know that's the way that works. And if you've ever even contemplated losing a child, or if you've had to bury your parents, or if you've ever lost a dear friend, we, we know we're not talking about the same thing. See, we know that. We're told we are, but we know full well that we're not. We are different. We would have to deliberately forget that we're different. Human beings are different. We're the only part of creation that has a soul. That's why we have to satisfy the God question. Even if the satisfaction of that question is to believe that there is no God, we have to satisfy it. Why do we instinctually pray? Why does every human being at every part of history on every corner of the planet have some form of worship? Why are we like that? Because we're different. The dog doesn't pray. That dog ain't praying. That dog's obeying so that you'll give it its food, right? It's not praying. The squirrels don't worship. Cats are of the devil, right? So. Th- why, why do we have to do that? So what Peter is saying is this. He's saying at the end of time, globally, that's going to be made fun of. It's going to be mocked. People are going to pursue their own evil desires. And they're going to deliberately forget what's obvious. See? Romans chapter 1 says that men will be without excuse the sheep and the goats are without excuse. How come? Because creation itself speaks to God. We know that. When you look at the world and the complexity of the world and the perfection of the world and how if we were one degree off here or one percentage off on this axis that we would all fall, we, we know that that didn't just happen. Run the math. It's, it's statistically impossible. We know that. But we choose to forget it. How come? Because if there's a creator, then we have to be subject to him. See? So we deliberately forget. And Peter says all that will be increased in those last days. As Jesus' return gets closer, the volume on that goes up. And he says, so he's talking to Christ followers now, and he's saying, you're going to hear that. You're going to get that drilled into you. You're going to be kind of tempted to believe it. But I want you to know something. He says this. I, 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 don't forget this one thing, dear friends. There's something you need to know. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So God looks at us. Peter says, listen, Christian, you got to know this. You're on God's timeline, not hu- a human timeline. God math and human math is different. Humanly speaking, you would look and say, well, maybe they got a point. I mean, it's been thousands of years since they've been talking about Jesus returning. He's not back. Seems like forever. Peter looks at the church and says, they don't have a point. This is God's math. We're like, Jesus has been gone for a couple thousand years. And Jesus is like, I've been gone for like 48 hours. Relax. He's been gone forever. I haven't gone, it's not even been a full weekend yet. I am not gone. I haven't disappeared you're, you've just lost sight of who's running the clock here. See, a thousand years is like a day, 
A day is like a thousand years. I actually haven't been gone that long. Peter goes on. He says, the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter says, that God, God's not stuck in heaven. It's not that he can't figure out how to get back here or doesn't know what to do. He's not being slow. He's being patient. Why, is it, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Because he loves you. And he wants you to be prepared to interact with his justice and his holiness. And you're not. He wants the church to do the work of going to the nations and proclaiming the gospel. He wants the church to do the work. That's why he created the church, to be the ministers of reconciliation. He's being patient. He's not being slow. This is an important thing. Catch this. Ready? Never mistake a patient God for a passive God. Never mistake a patient God for a passive God. God is not passive. And we can do that personally. I've, I've been living in this sin forever. I never get caught. I don't even know. God's being patient. He's not being passive. Well, I can, I can flip God the double bird in my brain and in my heart. What's he care? What's he going to do about it? God's being patient. He's not being passive because he is just. And his justice will be encountered. He is holy. And his holiness will be encountered. And he knows that outside of Jesus, nobody is ready to interact with his justice and his holiness. And he wishes that none would perish. He gave his son. Jesus lived his life, laid it down, raised it up again. The salvation is purchased and ready and free and a gift. A way of escape is provided and he's patiently waiting, not passively waiting. And he's on his own clock, not ours. And so Peter says, guys, you gotta know that. People are gonna make fun of it. They're gonna deliberately deny what is obvious in your life and nature and everywhere else. All that's, they're gonna push down. They're gonna mock it out. You're gonna be tempted but you got to remember, it's God's clock, not your clock. He's been gone a couple days. Well, where is he? He's waiting. For what? For more people to know and be rescued and be saved. See? But, Peter goes on, you got to know, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's going to happen. See? It, it's going to be a reality. Just like Christmas is a reality, the return of Jesus is a reality. And it's going to be a part of what we encounter and how we interact, right? Now, he then takes kind of this other hard turn toward those of us who are Christ followers. And what he does here is fascinating. He's gonna look and say, okay, this is a reality. What's God doing? He's being patient. Well, how long is it gonna be? When he decides it's gonna be. Well, what's the day and the hour? It's not important to even figure out. What we do is we use today to prepare for tomorrow. So our tomorrow is defined by our today. So if you're a Christ follower, you would prepare for tomorrow this way. If you're not a Christ follower, you will prepare for tomorrow this way. So he starts with those of us who are Christ followers, and he says this. He says, what kind of people ought you be then? If you're a Christ follower, and you know that the return of Jesus is going to happen, and it's probably, it's definitely closer than it was yesterday, right? It's a timeline, so it's definitely closer. And the, the, it, the world's going to feel like this when it gets even closer, so you do the math. What should you do? What kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Then verse 14, so then dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. So he says a holy life. A holy life is a life set apart for God's use. A, a godly life 
is a reflection of God's character. So I want to act like, talk like, think like, love like, be motivated like Christ would. Spotless is the idea of sinless. I've got this sin in my life. I want to push that out of my life. Blameless is tied to our reputation. I want people to know me as a follower and a lover of Jesus and at peace or unity with him, right? So my mind and my heart is in sync with God. I want those things to mark me and define me, and that's the kind of person that I ought to be. When you look at this here, this is fascinating, when Peter asks this question, what kind of person ought you to be, it's fascinating when you take that phrase and you push it back into the Greek, so we translated the English Bible from the Greek language, it comes across differently. So when, when we hear that in, in the English language, we hear it as a question, almost like a discussion starter. Like, so Jesus is returning. What do you guys think? What kind of people ought we be, right, is how we would hear that. When you hear that in Greek, it's not as much of a discussion starter as it is a statement. So in the Greek, it would sound like this. You know what kind of people we ought to be? That's what that would sound like. Instead, well, what do you think? It's more of an explanation. You know what kind of people we ought to be? We ought to be holy people. We ought to live godly lives. That's what we should do, because Jesus is getting ready to come back. We ought to be spotless and blameless and at peace with God. That's the kind of people we ought to be since Jesus is coming back. I was talking to a guy last night after service on Saturday night where people who love Jesus the most come to church. And so he was asking a very intelligent question because that's the kind of people that are there. And so he, he said, he, and so he said, Jeff, he goes, if what you're saying is true, then, then like if Jesus is going to come back any second and we don't know when, but it seems like it's closer, then it just seems like we should be all consumed with following Jesus and we, and we should get everything else out of our life but do that. And I said, you got it. That's it. That's the idea. That I'm all in, see, I'm picking up my cross, I'm bringing everything to Jesus, I'm all in at following Jesus because his return is soon, what else would you want me to do? And the idea that Peter is pushing at here is this idea of getting caught. That if it's a thief in the night, if it's a twinkling of an eye, that when Jesus returns, I'm caught living for Christ. Caught me doing it, right? I, I, deal, with, uh, I deal with death a lot as a pastor. I didn't really know that was part of the gig until I got into it. I didn't think about it. But I deal with death a lot. And by the way, I... I like that. I, I like being in your lives and with people when they're going through those hard times. I, it, I, it sounds weird, but I like doing funerals. I love, the, I love that I get to pastor and we get to be connected in those hard times. I just didn't think about how much death was going to be a part of my life when I got into the ministry. So I, over the years, been doing this a long, long time now, I've, I've done hundreds of funerals and been with lots and lots of people even as they've died, right? And this is what I've observed about death. Death comes at you one of two ways. It comes at you slowly or tragically. There's no in between. So you kind of know it's, gonna, it's coming, and it could be everything from aging to sickness. You know it's coming, or everybody's shocked at what just happened. That's the way it works. So over the years, as I've been in both those situations a bunch, this is the reality of what happens when you die. When you die you lose the ability to manage your image. So your life is laid bare when you die. It's the nature of death. You, who you really are is going to be exposed. 
because you can't manage the lie, you can't manage the image, you can't hide the thing anymore. People are going to catch you being who you are. And some folks are caught and the duplicitousness of their life is what shows up. That they, everybody thought this, but the phone, the desk, the computer, the relationships, oh, this was, and that's devastating. And other people, when they die, they're caught in their godliness. When, uh, when Heidi's mom died, she died pretty quickly. She was only 56 when she died. She died of a brain cancer very, very fast. We caught her because there's no ability to manage your image anymore, so we caught her. And so you're, clean, you're cleaning out the stuff because your stuff, it's how, that's how valuable your stuff is. Somebody's gonna go through it and throw most of it away. So we're cleaning out her stuff and we found her journals where she would write down her, her most intimate thoughts. And she's not around, so you're not violating her privacy, so we read them. And we caught her. We caught her writing down every family member's name and praying for us every day. We didn't know she did that. We caught her listening. We found out she was an eavesdropper. And she would listen to the conversations around her and then she would take our fears and concerns and struggles to prayer for us every day caught her. She led a Bible study at a, at a women's jail for probably 20 years. Thanksgiving was always a, always a roller coaster at mom's house because you never knew who was coming. <laughs> like, hey, I'm Susie. I'm, I'm out for the weekend. That's great. I'm Jeff. I live here. So it was just an interesting thing. And so you just never knew who mom was going to bring to the Thanksgiving table. And we caught her writing down the names of all those women and praying for them for years. Caught her. I caught my dad when he died. Caught him red-handed. When my dad died, the only thing I wanted from him uh, was his Bible. It's the only thing I asked for, so I got it. And, and so when you go through somebody's Bible, you catch them. You catch them. Because the, the parts of the Bible that are highlighted heavily with lots and lots of notes are the parts of the Bible that meant the most to that person. It's just the way it is. So I caught my dad. I flipped through his Bible, and, and I, you, you can see what he struggled with. I'm like, well, I guess, I guess he knew he had a temper because it's all underlined in all these prayers. And I'm like, wow, he, the old man was working on that the whole time. See? I caught him growing I caught him changing. I caught him learning. I caught him living a holy life, a godly life, wanting a spotless life, striving for a blameless life, and being at peace with Christ. Peter looks at the believer and he says, you're going to get caught. You're going to get caught. Your life is going to be laid bare. It's just the way it is. You're either going to die or I'm going to return and you're caught. And we're going to go through it. So knowing that, you know how you should live? You know how you should live? Because you're looking forward passage says. You look forward to it. Oh man, I get to meet Jesus. This is going to happen. This is going to go down. You know how you ought to live? So we prepare for tomorrow today as a Christ follower.
So we love radically today. Because like a thief in the night. We, we, we seek forgiveness today. Because in the twinkling of an eye. We live generously today. We pursue Christ today. We battle sin today. Because this is going to happen. That's what Peter's saying. Now, for those of us who aren't Christ followers yet, Peter would look and say, this is going to happen. Peter would say, I love you. I'm not, I'm not wagging my finger trying to be a jerk. You just got to know what you think about God's irrelevant. He is who he is. Me not liking the sun because I'm just as pale as you can be without a medical condition, whether I get mad at the sun or not is irrelevant. Whether I think it's unfair that I get a sunburn by walking to my mailbox is irrelevant. What I think about the sun doesn't matter. It is what it is. I yield to it. It doesn't yield to me. And so Peter would look at, a Christ, at, at someone who's not a Christ follower yet and say, guys, the reason I'm telling you this is because you are going to interact with a holy and just God who does not want you to perish. He gave his son. His son lived his life. He laid his life down. He shed his blood. He rose again. Everything you need for life and godliness has been purchased for you. It's a gift, and you have to receive it. And when you know that, and you don't, you're making a statement. And the statement isn't, I'm not ready yet. The statement isn't, well, I'm still in college. The statement is, I don't want it. When Jesus comes and sits on his throne and gathers the nations and separates the sheep from the goats, all he's doing, catch this, all he's doing is giving you what you want. If you wanted to know him and follow him and understand him and love him and be close to him, he will give you that. It's called heaven. He's giving you all you want. If you want to be free of him, not under his authority, not bothered with him, not bogged down with him, not yielding to him, he'll give you what you want. He'll look at you and in essence say, you know what? You never have to deal with me again. And that's called hell. He's given us what we want. And when I know the difference, and I've been informed and let know that there's a way, only one, Jesus, and that all of the cost of my ticket, so to say, has been paid, and I just won't receive it, I'm making a statement, I'm making a choice, I'm revealing the passions of my heart. And Peter, speaking on God's behalf, is not looking at us and saying, you're going to get yourself fried one day. That's not what he's doing. He's looking and he's saying, guys, this is coming. This is coming. And the time to prepare for tomorrow is today. Today is the day of salvation. You're not going to be able to pull us out in the end. Too fast. Thief in the night. Twinkling of an eye. So that's why I'm telling you now. Not so some weirdo can try to figure every little thing out. That's why I didn't tell you the whole thing. Not so that we can become weird people who talk about the apocalypse all the time. 
just so you know that there's, there's a plan and it's in motion and it will be fulfilled and God wants you to be ready for it. See? How ought you live? Like Jesus is going to return any second because he might. How ought you live as someone who's going to face a just God because you will and receive the salvation that he has freely offered to you, right? All right. Would you pray with me as the band comes out? Jesus, love you. Thank you for loving us enough to tell us this stuff. You're not an angry God. You're a loving God who loves us enough to shoot straight with us. So thank you for that. Jesus, for those of us who know you and follow you, would you through your Holy Spirit right now, would you reveal in the, any hidden sin, any distraction, anything that's less than valuable and eternal in our lives, any pattern of life that would speak to us not believing that you're coming again? Would you show us that? Help us to embrace it, cast it off, so we can get caught living for you. And Jesus, for those of us who don't know you yet, would you, through your same Holy Spirit, draw us to yourself with your kindness? You're kind enough to tell us you're kind enough to give your life for us. You're kind enough to provide a way of escape. So would you let that push into our hearts so that we can receive the salvation that is through you alone, Jesus, and be counted in your flock of sheep. In these moments, God, as we pray and as we yield and as we worship, would the, the whole of who you are be at the forefront of our hearts and our minds? Lead us now in these moments.